you know, I had this conversation with Will Zalatoris when he got hurt at the end of last year. You know, he's 24, right? And I'm like, name another sport that you can play when you're 64 and still make millions of dollars, right? Like, we're not trying to prepare you to play the next five years. We're trying to prepare you to play for the next 40 years. This is The Tournament Code. Now, Greg, before we get going, I kind of need to tell our listeners about something new that we're dropping on them, and it's called the Golfer's Agreement. I don't know if you've heard of it. You probably haven't because we just came up with it. And what it is, we do this whole podcast. It takes a lot of time for us to do. It takes 17 hours to do a whole episode. I promise you that's not an exaggeration. It takes a little bit of money, and you know what? We don't do any advertising. We do it for free because we love the game. However, however... All we ask in return is that if you're listening to this if on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, if you subscribe, leave a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, if you would like to subscribe, that's all, we, that's all we ask for. That is the one little thing we beg from you. So it's the golfer's agreement. It's like a handshake agreement. Look, we're not asking you to do anything crazy. Just do that for us. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Greg. We know about TPI. A lot of people know about TPI, and there might be... A lot of people, though, that haven't heard your background story and how everything came about. So tell us about your role, in, not just in TPI, but getting into golf, uh, your chiropractor work, et cetera. You want the short version or the long version? Hit me with the long version. We like we like to hear it all. <laughs> all right. So my background started out in the University of Maryland, engineering. I was doing civil engineering. I thought I was going to go into uh, building roadways and homes, buildings. I uh, decided real quickly that that wasn't my my favorite profession to be in. But when I was going through engineering, one of the companies I was working for when I was in college said, hey, we do a lot of work on the golf course. We do a lot of meetings on the golf course. You need to learn how to play. And I'd never played golf. So when I was uh, this is a sophomore, I went University of Maryland has their own golf course. They've actually hosted even a corn ferry event. So they've got a nice golf course and went out there. And I always say... One of two things happens when you play golf. You either become an addict or you never want to play again. There's no in, in between, right? And assuming you guys are addicts. And I became an addict real quick. And I was like, man, I suck at this game, but I love this game. So I started going to the driving range every day. And then I started realizing, you know, as a college student, even a driving range gets expensive really quick. And I was like, man, I can't afford uh, my this golf sickness that I'm getting. So I went to the golf course and I said, hey, listen, I work for an engineering company, you know, three days a week. I go, I've got four other days a week and mornings or nights. Do you guys need somebody to help, you know, uh, help at the golf course? And the, the head pro there hired me as I was the guy who drove the cart on the driving range, pick up the golf balls. So I was the, the picker and uh, I would go out in the mornings, pick up the balls. I would hit all the balls again before the range opened up. I'd go pick them up again and then we'd be ready. And I always say there's this phenomenon with your GPA and your handicap. They go the same direction, right? So my handicap was going down. So was my GPA because I was spending more time on the golf course. And believe it or not, in 18 months, I got down to a scratch golfer. So I just became a fanatic. I, I, I just I've had a thing for it. I loved it. Some of the pros there at the golf course were like, this kid's horrible. And they were giving me free lessons because I worked there. And I, I remember like, you know, I was like, man, I wish I would have taken this earlier I was now like a junior. I progressed from the range picker to the starter. So now I was, I was, I had all the power at the golf course, you know, everybody trying to get times, right. Trying to bribe me. And I had these three guys that used to come in all the time that, you know, the guys that they were already drinking before they got there, they bring the case of beer with them and they looked like they had the most fun. They were always my last tea time. And one day this one guy named Keith says to me, he goes, Hey, uh, we see you out here all the time, Greg, you're always a starter. We all, we have three guys. You should join us and be our fourth. And it didn't take a lot. I was like, you know, you guys are my last guy. I'm like, sure, I'll join you guys. So I became their fourth beer drinking golfer. And we went out and started started playing. And one day, I mean, it wasn't the first time. It was maybe three months later. We were playing. And the one guy says to me, he goes, so what do you do, Greg? And I'm like, oh, I'm an engineering student. He's like, oh, that's cool. Do you like it? And I'm like, not really. And he's like, well, why are you doing something you don't like? And I'm like, oh, it's too late. I was like 19 years old, right? And they're like, what do you mean it's too late? And I was like, you know, it's just a, it's what... It's the business that, you know, I thought it would make the most sense. And I was like, wow, what do you guys do? And no big surprise, the the three guys that I was playing with were chiropractors, three chiros. So I always say that, you know, chiropractors do one of 
two things when they meet some young kid. They either, number one, try and turn him into a patient, or number two, try and turn him into a chiropractor. These guys were like, hey, you got to forget this chiropractic, uh, this engineering thing. You should come check out chiropractic. And I don't know why, but the one guy convinced me to go into his office. I went into his office. I watched him, and I was like, man, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. It just it was something different. I liked it. His patients loved them. The ones that didn't like them never came back. I'm like, this is a cool business, right? And uh, so make a long story short, I added a fifth year at Maryland, got my engineering degree, and I got my minor in pre-med, went off to Iowa, which was like culture shock from Washington, D.C., Maryland area, going to, to Quad Cities, and went to Palmer College of Chiropractic. This was in 1993, or sorry, yeah, no, 1993, basically was out there for three and a half years, and uh, it was a shock from, you know, growing up on the East Coast to Midwest, but it was also a shock that we were in school daylight hours, so golf game was over, right? So I was like, man, this sucks, you know, I, I can't play golf, but I, I was one of those guys where if you play once, it's not enough, I wanted to play more, and I was like, you know, I'm just going to put the clubs away. So I put my clubs away in the closet, and I was like, I'll get back to it when I graduate chiropractic school. So three years later, we go into, in chiropractic, we do one-year internship. You don't have to do like four years like an MD. But this one-year internship or residency, they don't give you patients. You actually have to go get patients. You know, and I don't know about you, but I haven't met many people who want to get adjusted by a chiropractic student, right? So what people normally do is they fly in their their family and friends and they, because you have to adjust like 250 people or you don't graduate. Well, I didn't have money to fly in families and friends. And I know people that were going to come to Iowa. So I was like, man, I'm screwed. I don't, I don't think I'm going to graduate. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get these patients. So I started thinking, and this is literally the birth of my entire career was I, I said, you know, I remember when I played golf, when I worked at the golf course in Maryland, every time we would play, I'd play with a couple people. And at some point, if somebody had a bad round, they would say, oh, it's because of my bad shoulder or oh, my back's bothering me. And they all had some type of complaint. And I was like, well, maybe if I get those clubs out of the closet, I go down to the local golf course by myself. They'll pair me up with one, two, or three people. I'll play. And if they complain of pain, I'll say, hey, that's what I do. I work with golfers. You should come see me. And back, this is, you know, 1995. There was no, like, golf chiropractor or, you know, nobody specialized in golf. And lo and behold, it just, it, it went crazy. I went out there and started playing golf. And all these golfers, assistant pros, even pros were like, oh, man, I'd love to work with you. I didn't know someone just focused on golfers. And I was like, I was the first one to get all my adjustments in before I graduated. And I was like, this sounds like a great business. I was really lucky when I graduated. It was early 1996. That's also the same year Tiger Woods came on the scene. First year. Actually, it was at the Quad Cities at the, it was the Hardy's class. Now it's the John Deere classic. Saw him play his third tournament ever there. And it just created this whole buzz in the whole golf world. When I went to back home to Washington, D.C., I was like, you know what? I'm going to open up a practice called Advantage Golf. It's just going to work on golfers. Everybody told me I was crazy and you can't succeed having a chiropractic practice just for golf. And I was like, well, we'll see. Well, five years later, I had over 3,000 patients that were golfers from all over the United States. Ran into, got introduced to the CEO of Titleist and his young son, Peter Uline, who was 10 years old at the time. And Wally Uline, the CEO, kind of saw some of the research we were doing on 3D and motion capture. My engineering brain was always like, like that stuff. And he was like, you know, I think, I think we'd like to have you help us with our players. And in 2003, um, me and a golf pro by the name of Dave Phillips helped Titleist develop what's called the Titleist Performance Institute, which is where I'm dialing in from right now here in San Diego, California. It took a lot for them to twist my arm to have me move out to California and run this for them. But I always say we have the biggest team in sports. We have over 8,000 players worldwide that, sponsors, that Titleist sponsors in some form or fashion. Our job is to try and make these players play the best that they can play. Uh, we developed an education program called TPI Certification, where you, if you're a medical professional, fitness professional, or a golf professional, you can get certified and learn all the things that we learn from the best players in the world and how to make them perform better. And that's basically, that's the medium version, not the long version or the short version, but that's the medium version. Well, that is a really cool story. Before we get into TPI, I want to rewind a little bit, bit to things revolving around your work as a chiropractor. And I think, well, don't take offense to this. And if you do, it's fine. But lots of people will say people who love their chiropractors, love their chiropractors, swear by them. People who don't love their chiropractors, 
either don't love them or there's plenty of people who don't go to them and think they're quack doctors. It's not, re- it's yeah, you know, this, this is the same thing with lawyers. Yeah. We, well, that's the thing. We are, we are quacks. They got us dead on that one. I, you know, I just to say every profession's got good and bad. And when you find a good one, man, you stick with them. Right. So it's like, that's the cool thing about the, about most professions is like, when you find that plumber that does the job right and they charge you right, you're like, man, that's my guy or my girl, right? It's the same thing with chiropractic. You know, we, we've got uh, got some really good ones out there and finding the right ones is the key. Uh, absolutely. So very quickly, could you explain if possible, like you, you went to school for three and a half years on chiropractic work. Tell us just the general theory around general theory around it and how you've seen it help people. About chiropractic in general? Yeah. So chiropractic in general was developed by a guy last name Palmer, Dr. Palmer in in, uh, in Iowa. And basically he was doing early on, you know, early, early chiropractic medicine was doing some manipulation of the spine. And he thought he figured out a link between manipulating the spine and clearing up deafness and, and, and like neurological deficits. And to take a long story short, it, it's almost like you've got your central nervous system, you got your brain, your spinal cord, right? And your your nerves is the power plant for your entire body, right? So they go out and power everything. Sometimes those nerves as they're coming out of your spine can be can be irritated or like it's like a garden hose. If you step on the garden hose, that part of the garden's not getting water. So sometimes those can get irritated. And we found now is that by keeping the flow of, of your nervous system functioning properly, you can affect all different things in your body. And chiropractors are really good at, at trying to get your mobility back through your spine to make sure things, the nervous system's flowing properly. They also, chiropractors are now expert at manipulating almost any joint in the body, extremity, or all joints in the body, extremities, feet, hands, all that kind of stuff. And now if I take it to the modern world now, if you go to the modern chiropractic now, you know, I'm, I'm partners in a business called FMS, Functional Movement Systems, right? And my partners are physical therapists. You know, Gray Cook is a partner of mine who's one of the top physical therapists. And I always say, if, if you come watch Gray and I treat, treat, and we've treated together many times, I think most people can't tell the difference now. Like if you look at the top sports physical therapists, top, top chiropractors, my saying is this, I go, if I come to your practice and I can tell what you are, physical therapist or chiropractor, there's an obvious major gap in your knowledge because the best in the world do all of it now. Like if you want to be a chiropractor or a physical therapist on the PGA tour, you got to do everything. Right. And, uh, but the originating, the original thing with chiropractors was establishing a solid nervous system so that the power supply to your body works properly. That was the original intent of the chiropractic world. Well, that is awesome. Thank you for that background and for helping explain that to us. It's, there's not that many, at least that we've had on, people who have that background in chiropractic. And so it's helpful for us to hear. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of TPI. You said you talked with Wally, twisted your arm, got you to come out to San Diego, uh, which has some nice weather. And you guys developed TPI, which now services over 8,000 clients worldwide, is a massive organization. What was it like starting it up? I know that for at least from what I've heard from other people, when you guys were first beginning, you guys really had no, what's the right way to phrase it? There was a, you guys were going in a direction, but it was kind of a new concept in the industry to have that. Yeah. I mean, to your point, there was no golf fitness industry when we started, right? So uh, there was no trainer that would say, oh, I'm a golf fitness expert. So when, you know, I worked with a bunch of sports. I, golf was always my primary thing, but I also consulted with a bunch of other athletes. And the worst was always baseball because baseball has the minor leagues, major leagues. There's like 250 players. When you say I'm going to help with the Yankees, it's, there's a lot of players. When the CEO Titleist comes to me and says, hey, I'd like you to take care of our players. I was like, man, there's only 125 total people on the PGA Tour. There's probably maybe 40 or Titleist. I'm like, this is going to be easy. There's going to be 40 guys. So when we came out here, I remember one of the first meetings, I was like, I need to see your roster of your players, like who you want us to help take care of. And he's like, what do you mean roster? And I'm like, well, I, I'm assuming you want us to help anybody who plays Titleist ball. And he's like, great, we sponsor over 8,000 players worldwide. And I'm like, wait a minute, what'd you say? And I was like, there's no way, you know, that, that, that we can handle 8,000 players, you know, a sponsor. And he's like, well, that that's who we do, figure it out. So I was like, you know, I was doing some seminars 
before I went to Titleist trying to teach other people how to do stuff. And I was like, hey, listen, one of the biggest problems in the industry is like, let's say you're a personal trainer at 24-hour fitness, right? We have we have spent enough time working with the best players in the world that the best players in the world are now validating how important fitness is in golf. And, and you know, everybody knows that, hey, working out can help, right? Just look at the best players in the world. But now they want to make sure they find a trainer that knows what the hell they're doing. And if you go to 24-hour fitness and some trainer goes, hey, yeah, I, I work with golfers. The golfers are like, wait a minute, what do you know about golf? You know, they're kind of, they, they want them to really understand this. Well, so I was like to the CEO, I was like, hey, listen, it would help a ton if we actually took the data that we're learning from the best players in the world, create a certification program, and we could certify trainers that they can hang a shield on the wall saying that, hey, I'm certified by Titleist, that I really know what I'm doing. And that's what we did in 2008. We launched the TPI certification for fitness, medical, and golf coaches. And now, you know, we have the second largest certification in the world outside of the PGA, in golf, outside of the PGA. We have close to 30,000 TPI certified professionals in 64 countries all over the world. We teach in 10 languages. And it's basically, you know, like I said, collecting data on the best players in the world and sharing what they do and how they perform better from the gym to, like you said, tournaments to clubs and fitting. All that's involved in our certifications. And you're from your local personal trainer to your chiropractor, your physical therapist, your MD, or your golf coach can take those certifications. Before you started TPI and you kind of evaluated what the players on tour were doing as far as working out physically, what were they doing in this, in this time? And how did you kind of change that to make it better? Well, there, there was always some players that were into fitness, right? Like Brad Faxon uh, was, was into fitness fitness forever there was the uh gary player obviously is has is, built this whole profession about being fit and look at look at gary player jack nicholas arnold palmer the three greats look look at gary now compared to the other i mean you can see the people are like man i kind of want to look like that when i'm older right so there was and nick faldo was a big proponent of fitness but then there was guys like brad faxon told me a story one time i don't know if you want me to tell the story but I'll, uh, he said that chichi rodriguez came over to him when he was a rookie and put his arm around him and said son i'm gonna Help, help you save you a lot of pain here. He goes, you see that? And he pointed at the health fitness trailer that had just started on the PGA Tour. He goes, stay the hell away from that trailer and you'll be fine. So there was guys that thought the fitness could screw you up. And then there's the guys that were like, you know, I don't, I don't think so. And then Tiger Woods changed all that, right? So when Tiger came onto the screen, everyone was like, man, this kid's got crazy power. You can see he's kind of, you know, he's a fit athlete. And all of a sudden, lots of money started coming in the sport. And when money comes to the sport, so did the athletes, right? And then, and then, like, you know, we used to have these golfers that were great and they could just hit the ball straight and great. And then all of a sudden, they would meet a Dustin Johnson who could hit the ball straight, but 100 yards past them, right? And then they had no chance. So now, now the, whole, the whole world. So before, I would say before really 19, 2000, let's say before 2000, it was convincing people that fitness mattered. We don't need to do that anymore. Now it's you have no chance unless you condition your body and have the speeds that these are, or else you just you're just not you're not you're not going to make it. Absolutely, it's definitely become survival fittest is always there, but it's definitely up to the ante on the fittest and the best athletes in the sport. For you and your data capture system, you said you were onto that pretty early, and that's something even these days is still coming around like we're starting to get better stuff obviously swing catalyst etc is around on the golf side and there have been force plates around for a while uh just to measure like vertical jump etc and force being put in the ground tell us a little bit about the motion capture and data that you were gathering uh, before you got tpi and now that you're at tpi what you've been doing there yeah i was one of the the first ones to bring 3d motion capture into golf we had saw saw some stuff that was in baseball and was like, hey, I think we could apply this to golf. It's kind of funny. It's golf took this technology and it's gone exponential. Now it's filtering back into baseball. But um, a lot of that started in baseball. Uh, they just weren't ready for it in baseball. But, you know, I like the, the technology conversation. I always like to say that there's three things that you want to know about a golfer before you open your mouth. Right. If you're in the player development, you know, and these players are playing for money. This is their profession. It's really important you give them the right information. There are three things that matter. You want to know what they're doing. You want to know how they're doing it. And you want to know why they're doing it, right? Those are the three things, right? What, why, and how. Now, if I want to know what a golfer is doing, right? 
obviously, first and foremost, I'll probably take video, right? So videos are great. What gives me, uh, I can use my iPhones, one of the best cameras on the planet now, 240 frames per second. We have the new the new Huawei P40 or P50 Pro phones from China. They have three Leica cameras that can go up to 7,000 frames per second. I mean, it's crazy what your cell phone can do now, right? So we take some video so you can look at their mechanics, see what they're doing. That's kind of what they're doing. I can look at their ball data so I can take a launch monitor like a track man and I can see what the ball's spinning, the direction it's moving. So I can understand why the ball's moving the way it's moving. So the launch monitors give me some more information on what they're doing. I can then take sensors or I can take markers or even markerless now and I can create a 3D model of the player on the computer and do an advanced what we call kinematic analysis and really break down like how much knee flex do they have, how much trunk rotation do they have, what's the sequence of their body parts and that those, these are all advanced ways of looking at what a golfer is doing. And we do all that on our players first. Now, when I see what you're doing, I still don't know how and I still don't know why. I just know what you're doing. So now if I want to know how you're doing it, so another way, like let's say the person's moving too far away from the target. Let's say they're swaying, right? We used to think like, oh, if you sway, you just sway. We now know that there are 40 different ways of how to sway, right? So I kind of like to know how you're swaying, right? So if I want to know how you're doing it, that's force plates. Like you mentioned swing callus. There's there's gas, spark move, swing catalyst. These are some of the, the big force plate companies out there. Force to me, like I said, is the fastest, easiest way for me as a coach to feel what a player is doing. Like if I want to step inside your swing and feel what it feels like to swing, force plates help us do that. So we'll get, we'll get the what from the video, the 3D motion capture, the launch monitor. We'll get the how from a force plate so I know how you're doing it. Now, once I know what you're doing and I know how you're doing it, it still doesn't tell me why you're doing this, right? Now, if I want to know why you're doing this, well, now there's psychology, right? So maybe you were taught, hey, you're supposed to do this, or you think this is what you're supposed to do, or it's physical. Like maybe, hey, the reason you're doing this is because your hip doesn't rotate properly, your spine, and this is where our physical screen comes into play. So when a player comes in, in the, and it doesn't matter what sport it is now, in, in high-level player development, you're going to see these evaluations. You're going to see video. You're going to see 3D. You're going to see launch monitor. You're going to see force plates. You're going to see physical screens and some type of psychology evaluation because basically they're trying to ask the question or answer the question of what are they doing, how are they doing it, and why they're doing it. And when you have that information as a coach, it's just data. There's no opinions here. It's pretty obvious what you need to work on with your players. So when good players come to you now, Tyler's players come to you, you're running through that gamut. You're seeing where they fall in, et cetera. And then what are you telling them as what I will just call the, as the, as the TPI guy, TPI guy, what are you telling them? How are you integrating with their team and system? Right. So most players now have a posse that they've surrounded them. We call it the sphere of influence. They got a coach, they've got a trainer, they've got medical sports psychologists. Normally we try and we try and have the players come with their team if they can, but we will create a data a data report so they can, so the team gets all the information that we had. We usually sit down with them and we ask like, how can we help? You know, like what, what things are, do you want to know? And a lot of times players come in once a year. Sometimes they come in quarterly and just trying to make sure they're not, they're checking all their crossing their T's and dotting their I's. But basically we'll give them the information that they need. We'll help answer any questions that they have. If they were like, Hey, we were wondering, you know, can I compare them to the rest of your PGA tour database? And is this, is this something we need to work on and looking at statistics and all that kind of stuff. And then hopefully it turns into like all that data I just talked about. It's not for the player. It's for the, the sphere of influence it's for the coach. Like you don't go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't go, here's your MRI. You know, the, the player, the patient would be like, what the, is there a tumor? Like, like the player just wants to know what's the report. They just want to know what the thing is. So we take all that data for the team. And then we say, we give them our recommendation, the team. We go, we think that, uh, you know, they should shorten their driver by a half inch. They should move a quarter inch closer to the ball, move the ball slightly farther forward. We think they should increase the range of motion in their hip. They should develop power in their lead foot. They should, be, you know, whatever, wherever the things are, we give the recommendations. And then the team kind of builds it into their program. That is awesome and super specific. A lot of times things are captured in generalities and being able to give that kind of data to someone and have those recommendations and the data someone I'm sure is a blessing to the team. There's something you mentioned on the lead foot there, which was very interesting to me, not in in and of itself uh, because of what you said, but because of some videos I've seen 
from you otherwise that changed my concept of understanding how the lead foot acts in the golf swing and I'll preface it and then let you take it from there's I played golf uh, up till now I guess I've played for 15 ish years give or take a few years off I'm a pretty good athlete in most sports and I can play most sports plenty fine and with golf I thought I understood at least as of even like a year ago, I thought I at least had an idea of what the lower body was kind of supposed to be doing, how that left leg was supposed to jump or put push off the ground. I thought I understood that. And then I saw a video of you sitting in a rotary chair, similar to what I have right here, explaining, Hey, here's how you actually use that left leg. And I, I saw it. I was like, and you, I watched it. I was like, Hmm, that doesn't seem like anything I under, I, understand like i've totally have whiffed on understanding this concept and then i tried it out of my office I'm like okay boston see me sliding down the hallway so like okay i'm gonna have to try to pull this out to the course explain to people if possible i know we're mainly over audio medium our viewers on youtube might see some try to explain to them what's going on with that left leg because i thought it was like essentially a get left and then jump up and what you described is much different than that. Yeah, what you're referring to is basically the information that we've learned from force plates on how. Like you're asking me, like, how am I supposed to use the left leg? Like I said, force plates tells us how, right? And one of the things that we've learned, I think a lot of people from a concept standpoint have felt like, and I use, I call it the gas pedal, brake pedal analogy. I'm always asking my players, I'm like, what's your right leg? If you're a right-handed player, I go, what's your back leg or your right leg? Is that a gas pedal or a brake pedal? And most people will say, oh, it's a gas pedal. I push off my right leg and it creates power. I'm like, what's your lead leg? And they're like, well, that's kind of my brake pedal. I post up and spin around that. Unfortunately, if I look at the best players in the world, there is no brake pedal. They're gas pedal. They're both gas pedals. And believe it or not, the left leg or the lead leg for a right-handed player is usually two times the gas pedal that a, a trail leg is. And just that concept alone is what you're talking about. You're like, wait a minute, I didn't, I've never thought of it like that before. But when you, when you really understand that there are two types of forces in the golf swing, right? There, there's, there's linear force, like moving right to left, and then there's angular spinning, rotating, right? The linear speed is the first part of the golf swing. You start this weight shift. And then that linear speed is converted to angular speed to try and twist this club around your body, right? That linear speed, you're right. The back leg, the right leg is a gas pedal. It gets you going linear. It gets you moving towards the target. But the lead foot's job is to take that linear speed and turn it into angular velocity, right? And it's the pushing from the lead foot, like pushing the chair backwards like we talked about in some of these, that creates the spinning of the torque of the club going around your body. And it's amazing that most PGA Tour players will push at about 200% of their body weight. That's how hard they're pushing, creating this, this horizontal torque, we call it, or, or, or twisting speed. And how you do that is critically important into how much power you develop and how easy it is for you to develop power. And we've tried so many things. We look at our, our tour players' force signatures on a force plate. And then what we try and do is we try and come up with, like, what are some exercises or some drills that can mimic that so we can show somebody who doesn't know how to do this? And the funny thing you mentioned, there's the rotary chair. We tried all kinds of stuff. And one day somebody mentioned to us like, hey, I think it's almost like pushing a chair backwards. And I'm like, hey, let's try that on a force play. And we sat down, we pushed backwards. And it's the exact signature we see with our tour players. Ever since then, I'm like, dude, the rotary chair is like one of the greatest training aids in the world to get that feel, right? So you're just sitting on a rotary chair with your left foot and just pushing the chair backwards and twisting. That's kind of what, that's kind of how tour players use their lead foot. That is super unique. And for people who are just listening, uh, there's videos out there on this, but uh, essentially you take a rotary chair, like an office chair, you push with uh, the correct leg. So if you're a right-handed golfer, your left leg, you're essentially trying to push back as far back as you can and spin only 90 degrees, correct? So you're facing... I think Office Depot or Amazon owes me a commission because I think I've sold more rotary chairs. Than I think I'm a rotary chair salesman now. I think that's the... <laughs> That is that is awesome. That is that's super helpful and insightful as far as being able to have. That's why that data is so nice with those force plates. Being able to being able to match those well, types I, of things. If up. I take that another step, I'll tell you something. Like over the last couple of years, that's been very eye opening. Is we started looking at our exercises, right? So, like, let's say you do a medicine ball, like a horizontal, like a shovel pass, or and I'm like, you know, I wonder, you know, we give these players these exercises. And we assume that it's training the same thing that they're doing in their golf swing. But I wonder if 
That's the same way how they do it in their golf swing. And you'll be surprised how many times you look at the exercises and you're like, that is not how they do it in their golf swing. And that's why we don't see a lot of great transfer with some exercises where other ones we do. So now a lot of times we even do our exercises on the force plate just to make sure it's matching the force signature that we see when when they swing. And that's what I was going to ask as far as we talked with Ben Shear the other day and you guys are know the fitness side better than I do. And I'm not too smart in that area, but one of the concepts was said, and I only remember the first two parts of said, which is specific application. Imposed demands. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. And so um, when it comes to specific application, uh, you know, in fitness, some things can, we can use fitness to train some things in our golf game or golf swing per se. Now there's overall general fitness and there's some specific things we can do. And one of the things that that can have actually a specific effect. And one of the things I was going to ask is in your exercises, when it comes to that sort of movement, what have you, besides the force plays, what have you done to try to implement that feel, especially for someone who's not new or who's new to it. Cause if you take horizontal, well, I think, I think, go ahead. Yeah, I think no one been to, I think, I think the said principle is pretty important to understanding how the environment can affect, you know, your motor, motor pattern. So like the best example of that, one of the most common swing characteristics is called early extension, which is your lower body moving towards the golf ball. Right. And that to me is very obvious. You just don't know how to, you don't know how to push from the ground properly. Right. Uh, if you're moving, your lower body moves, you stand up and your lower body moves towards the golf ball in the downswing. A great way to implement the said principle is hit balls with the ball below your feet. So you're standing on a like the side of a hill, the ball below your feet. If you think about it, the ball below your feet, when you swing, gravity wants to pull you down the hill, right? So the imposed demand is there's this there's this environmental demand of making gravity pull you forward. So you have to adapt. The specific adaptation that you make to that imposed demand is you start pushing up the hill because you don't want to fall forward, right? That pushing up the hill is kind of like the rotary chair, right? So if you if you can modify environments for practice to simulate something that the player doesn't even realize that they have to do this, but it could, that's a great way of, of, of attacking some of these problems. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's, that's, that's kind of how you use those. No, that, that is helpful. Cause I was, I was thinking about like the medicine ball throw and while those things might be helpful as to other specific areas, I know for sure, at least with, at least from my perception of what's going on, how I'm trying to move my lower body and how I'm trying to throw that medicine ball horizontally in the wall is completely different than what I would be trying to do. If yeah, I was like, trying like to I'm saying that is, force. is like, let's say you hang back mm-hmm. okay, you don't get onto your lead side. If I said, Hey, listen, I want you to take a medicine ball and I want you to stand on the side hill and I want you to throw it up the hill. Right. Again, I'm using the said principle. I'm, I'm putting this demand where the hill wants you to fall down the hill. I'm telling you to throw it up the hill. As soon as, if you practice that going uphill for a while and then you go on flat ground, all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm covering way better. I'm getting over here. I'm like, well, because you just practiced on an uphill, you know what I mean? So you can, sometimes it's not as much as, hey, is a medicine ball important? It's how you apply those drills and how you do them is kind of what I'm sure Ben was talking about. So just to clarify, would you say that you have seen people have an issue of hanging back if they do a lot of medicine ball workouts? If you do it wrong. Again, remember, if a, if a, if a training aid, a exercise, a practice protocol, something can help, of course it can also hurt, right? Like it, it can't be one way. You can't say, oh, it's only going to make me better. It could also make you worse. So if you sit there and practice hanging back and on, on your back leg with a medicine ball all day long, it wouldn't surprise me if you were hanging back when you swing. Absolutely. No, that's not the medicine ball's fault. That's your coach's fault, right? <laughs> so there's For letting you do or that. Or you're just not applying it properly. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned early extension there. I think that's an interesting topic to go into, if you don't mind. One, because of power, one of the the power, what people might call leakage, some power leakage happens there. And the causes for early extension. Back when I was a junior golfer, the main theory, again, it's not like it was that long ago, but it was, I guess it is 10, 12 years ago, they, the general theory was most of the time like you weren't strong enough. And it was always kind of confusing to me. It was like your core isn't strong enough, X, Y, Z. And I'm not like, I was, I was confused by it. Cause it's like, I could do consistently. I could do a four minute plank. The longest plank I could do was 10 minutes. I'm like, man, if my core isn't strong enough, like, I don't know. I don't know how I could get any stronger. 
so tell us about early extension and why you see what you see from that. Yeah, I think there's been so many myths on early extension. I've seen so many too, and I, I can tell you, uh, let's put an end to that right now. I'll give you the, the the science. So basically, early early extension happens for a couple of reasons. Okay, first and foremost, remember we said the golf swing has two types of speed: linear speed and angular speed, right? When it gets to angular speed, you are twisting an object around a circle, right? It's rotating around the center of you. You're the center of axis and it's spinning around you. Whenever you take an, a, an implement and you spin it in a circle, it creates something called centripetal acceleration, which means it wants to fly away from the center. So if you let go of a club, it's going to fly. It's not going to hit you. It's going to fly away from you, right? So your job in a golf swing is to keep the club from flying away from you. So the club is trying to pull away. You're trying to pull back, Right. So believe it or not, when we test players, pull strength is so important, like being able to do a row or pull because you're counterbalancing centripetal acceleration to keep this club going in a circle. And we just had the world long drive last weekend. And if you look at the, the big hitters, the, the Kyle Berkshires, the Justin James, we calculate their centripetal acceleration, right? And, and it's, just, it's just math, right? It's velocity squared or uh, it's uh, radius times velocity squared. And you go through and, and basically what you'll see real quickly is if you want to move a club at 100 miles an hour, right? Let's say you want to take your driver and swing at 100 miles an hour. That creates about 85 to 90 pounds of centripetal force. In other words, you have to be able to pull back at 85 or 90 pounds just to keep the club going in a circle, or the club will pull you towards the golf ball, right? Which is called early extension, right? It'll pull you out of there, right? Now, if you want to be Kyle Berkshire or Justin James, you want to swing at 160 miles an hour. Just crazy that they're touching those numbers now. It's V squared, it's velocity squared. So the, the formula here, it's not 80 pounds or 85 pounds, it's 200 pounds, right? So Kyle and Justin, they are counterbalancing 200 pounds of centripetal acceleration in their golf swing, right? That's a lot, of, that, that's the best argument I've ever heard for strength, right? But it's pull strength, not core strength. Now, core is involved in pull strength, but you know, if I take most of our big hitters and I go to a cable cross and I say, let's do a row, there's not enough plates on the machine to they can do the, the whole machine, right? Because they're so used to counterbalancing 200 pounds of centripetal acceleration in their swing. So there is a strength component, a, a pull strength component. That's number one. Number two, like I said before, hot, hot, if I just if I take a cable and I just I just pull with my arms, I can only I can only pull so much. If I use my feet to help push back, like with the chair, and use my body. I can create more pull strength. And this is the key to early extension. If you're not pushing the ground properly to help counterbalance that centripetal acceleration, the club will pull you forward, right? So we've developed both things. We develop pull strength and we develop the feeling of how to push from the ground to counterbalance. Because if you're pushing the chair backwards in your golf swing, there's no way you're moving forward. You should be moving backwards. When it comes to the pull strength, and let's say I'm I'm at home, I'm like, okay, I don't know if I have the pull strength or not, what, what is the measure? You said 90 pounds approximately. Is that single arm pull? Yeah. Just take, go, if you have a cable cross, go to any gym as a cable cross, set the cable cross to 80 pounds. Let's just say 80 pounds. Let's say hundred miles an hour. You know, average PJ tour is like 117 miles an hour, but let's just say hundred miles an hour, right? Set the cable cross to 80 pounds. Take your lead hand, your left hand, get into your impact position, pull the, pull the handle back and just stabilize. Just Stabilize impact. If you can do that, you have the strength to to not early extend. If you're like, I can't do that, then you can't swing the club 100 miles an hour and maintain posture. It's going to be impossible, right? So you can lower it down and we can actually go down and go, hey, you can only do 60 pounds. I understand why you only swing the club 70 because if you went farther, you would be erratic losing posture. That, that's I'm simplifying it, but that's an easy way to think of it. That is helpful. And another question as part of the component and this is more player dependent, but how much does where the club is at the top of the backswing matter as to that early extension? Like some people might say early extension might not just be a symptom of strength, but also a mechanism to shallow the club and square it up. Is that a component? So there's three ways to get the club on plane. Now I would say, listen, they're the pl planing mechanisms I call them. Swing planes are one of the most important things in golf, right? If you want to be able to control your ball flight, getting the club on plane is important. Now, planing mechanisms, there's there's some easy ones. Wrist, right? So your wrist can plane the club, make it steep and shallow just by flexing, extending, hinging. Shoulders, right? By internally, externally rotating the shoulder, I can plane the club crazy. 
But if I've got restrictions in shoulder, I got restrictions in wrist, another one is posture. Standing up and bending forward changes this, right? So a lot of times guys that have poor shoulder, poor wrist range of motions, they use posture to help play in the club. In early extension, standing up will shallow the club. Getting bent forward will steepen the club. So a lot of times if a player does have, let's say they're over the top, they have no shoulder range of motion, wrist, they will use early extension to play in the club. But anytime you do that, like I said, when you stand up, you're getting closer to the golf ball. Now you can't create, you can't counterbalance the centripetal acceleration and you will lose power. So you'll get the club on plane, you'll hit it straighter, but you will lose power. That is some technical stuff, just all in all. And I really appreciate those insights because it's not something that, you know, we have access to talk about that much, talk in depth with. And you obviously have a lot of the answers. Besides early extension, which probably is a large category, besides early extension, what sort of commonalities do you think, commonalities do you see in swing air, swing errors, what we might call errors, or maybe compensations across tour players that can be modified or improved by just understanding concepts better or work in the gym as opposed to like full-on technical change, if you understand my drift. You're saying like which ones have the biggest physical correlations? What like errors or mis just like how we talk about with that left foot pushing back exactly are there any other misconceptions oh, as to that concept ones. yes got you. you know maybe maybe a minor one is uh i don't see this as much anymore but swaying there used to be a thing like people used to think hey i need to gather some momentum i sway away from the target so i can move towards the target like uh if you look back in the days like dj or ernie used to have a little bit of little sway motions we now know that you know when you create force when you push from the back leg to create that linear speed you want your center of mass in front of your center of pressure. So in other words, like a sprinter leans forward. So when they push, they go forward. If you sway and you get your body behind outside your back leg and then you push off your back leg, you go up instead of lateral, right? So making sure you understand that, that there's no advantage there. I would say a lot of times people were coached out of power. They, they were told not to jump. Like we hear this a lot of times like, oh, I had too much legs. I was jumping. Well, jumping vertical force is, is one of the primary ways to help create centripetal acceleration, but just jumping in the right direction, right, right mechanism, I think is important. So jumping, swaying, let's see. I, I think another big one that uh, at the high level is reverse spine angles. So in other times, the way your spine tilts at the top of the backswing, if you're leaning towards the target versus away from the target, if you look at Tiger Woods, Nick Valve away from the target, if you look at like a Fred Couples kind of leaning towards the target, we now know reverse spine angle, you can play good golf at it, but it's not if, it's when your lower back's going to go down, right? So if you look at a lot of the, the number one cause of lower back pain is reverse spine angle. It just creates some serious stresses on the lumbar spine. So I think that concept is something we talk to with a lot of our players about, which is important. Those are probably the big ones, concept-wise. Well, those are some great concepts, and I have some questions about those concepts in action. So you have TPI, you have players come to you. Tell us kind of... 365, what a year looks like. Uh, right now, we're kind of close to the, we're essentially in the PGA Tour offseason to a degree, whatever there is of the offseason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They they have a little, there's at least a little bit of gap in some room, depending on what they're playing in right now before January picks up again. What does it look like 365 for you? Because I know that not only do you have players coming to you, but you're traveling different places, helping players out, doing work on the road. What does that look like for you? What does my daily routine look like right now? Is that what you're asking? I'm asking 365 what Greg Rose's work at TPI looks like. Okay, so I think, but a lot of people don't know this too. Is obviously golf is our primary thing here. We take our all-time players worldwide. But we also help consult with half the MLB teams, right? So we have a whole program called On Base University where we do certifications for baseball, softball, and we do one racket fit for tennis. Uh, right now is prime baseball season because all the teams are, are, you know, shutting down. And, and so just giving you my 365, right now we get overwhelmed. We have, we're actually building an entire new baseball, softball science center here at TPI, which is really cool. Instrumented mounds, hitting cage, all that kind of stuff. So we see a lot of our baseball players here. Obviously, like you said, PGA Tour, I wish we had an offseason. You know, I, I think that the offseason is for very select players that don't care about the fall series and stuff. But, you know, I think 
I think the world of PGA is starting to realize that they need to figure out how to create an offseason just for the longevity of their players and periodization and all that kind of stuff. But it's 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 difficult right now. So on PGA Tour, I you know used to say that oh this was this is the time where we ramp up. I mean, name a a tournament that's not a major now. I mean, you've got your world matches, you've got the majors, then you've got the FedEx Cup. But I'm like, every tournament matter. I mean, I can't I can't periodize and try and plan for this one because you win a tournament, you got two year exemptions, and these things these things all matter, right? So. Our guys are constantly working, right? So we ne- there is never a downtime for us in golf, right? Like baseball, there's obvious times where there's downtimes and odd times. Golf, it's not like that. Makes it very challenging from a conditioning standpoint and how to how to how to do your players. But you you have to do these micro periodization. It's almost week to week. You know, we we basically I don't know how complex you want to go, but we basically I, I developed four four sample weeks for our players, right? So we have what we call tournament week right? We have rest week, we have prep week, and we have rest prep week. Those are our four options, just to kind of give you an idea. So basically, depending on the player, we have some players that like to play three or four weeks in a row and then take a break. We have some players that are like, I like to take two weeks in a row and then take a break, then two weeks in a row. Or some are like, I need at least three weeks to ramp up before I'm at my, or, you know, I don't know, it doesn't matter type of stuff. So basically what we have is we have tournament week is the week of a tournament, right? Rest week means you have the week off and there's nothing next week. This is a true rest week. There's nothing next week. A prep week means I've got this week off, but next week's a tournament. That's a prep week. And then rest prep week is I've got one week in between two tournaments. It's part rest, part prep, right? So those are your four options, right? So we talk about, you know, preparing for tournaments. We're like, what week are we talking about right now? Are we in rest week? Are we in prep week? Are we in rest prep week? Are we in tournament week? And each of those are different, right? And we go through and we go like, you know, for tournament week, here's what, here's what, and each player is different. Like, like what certain players like to do for a tournament, you know, what John Rahm might want to do might be very different than what, what uh, Scotty Sheffler wants to do. Right. So I, I think you have to find out what works best for them and like, what does a rest week really look like? You know, how much, you know, downtime do they really need? But for, for our 365 with our players, it's, we try and develop that program. We try and make sure that they understand what they're doing, where they are, and hopefully sooner than later, we'll be changing that and we'll have off-season weeks where we can do it. But right now, we don't have that. When Daniel and I were first starting golf fitness, we, we did the TPI screenings and we did our correctives and we did strength work to go along with that. But one thing I don't really remember doing back then was speed training. And that's something that's really popular right now, whether it's the stack or the super speed sticks or what Bryson does and just swings a golf club really fast. How do you integrate speed training with TPI or what is your opinion on that? I think we're the reason for the speed training. So I think, you know, obviously super speed was developed out of our program. But I I think I think that uh, speed training is probably I mean, it's hard to debate that it's not the number one most important weapon in the game right now. Right. So. You know, when if if listen, if we're playing, the three of us are playing and I've got an eight iron and you guys have five irons, I'm going to win. I don't care how good you are. I'm going to win. Right. So uh, having that distance advantage is statistically a, a sound fact that it helps. Right. So we now know that, you know, speed development can start as young as five years old. Right. And and so that's why you see these players out there now that it's like hitting 190 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour is like nothing because they've been training like this their whole life. So. Speed training to me, first and foremost, is number one, is you can't be fatigued, right? You have to be fresh, right? So it, number one, it should be at the start of a workout. Number two is when you're done with speed training, again, you should still not be fatigued. If you if you swing so many times and you're tired, you're getting slower. You're not getting faster. And that's a mistake. Like if I were to argue some of the things I've seen with some of the long drive, even Bryce, some of those volumes, I'm like, don't copy that because most people just get slower doing that. Because as you keep swinging harder, you, you actually get slower. So I think it's very important to have a launch monitor to make sure that when you're doing your super speed or your your stack or any of your speed protocols, that the speed's going up. If the speed's staying the same or going up, you're fine. If it starts to go down, you're done. Stop for the day. And you should feel when you're done, you should feel like I could go play golf. It's not like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. I can't do anything. That's That's not speed training, right? So speed training can be done daily. I like it maybe every two days, every three days. But you can do it because, again, it's not fatiguing, right? You're going to go through and do this. You should track it, use some type of monitor, 
And then to me, what I like to do is I like to take your take your driver, do a cruise, just do your normal, I got to hit the fairway cruising speed. Go do your speed training. I don't care how you do it, but do your speed training. And then when you're done, come back and go, okay, I'm just going to reset my brain. Forget about the speed training stuff. I'm going to just do my normal cruiser. Now, I don't. you can do all kinds of crazy stuff in your in your speed training. You can lift your lead heel and take a club and you do all this stuff because it doesn't matter. You're not going to swing like that. After you're done doing that, you come back to your cruising and go, okay, I'm just going to reset the brain and you do two or three just your cruising, but go look at your cruising speed. The cruising speed goes up, right? And the more you do this, your swing just gets faster. You're not messing with your swing. And that's the key to, to speed training, in my opinion, is I think a lot of people are trying to do all this crazy stuff in their swing. And I'm like, that's not how we, we do with the best players in the world. We do crazy stuff in their training to teach their brain what it feels like to move the club faster so that when they go do their cruising, they feel like, number one, they're going slower, but they're actually cruising speeds going up. So when it comes to speed training, what it's sounding like you're saying is if if you can work it out, what what kind of time frame are you doing those the reset on the cruise drivers? Like what kind of time frame is that in a speed a normal speed session and again it depends on how long you've been doing this because a lot I mean sometimes those can last less than 10 minutes right so I mean I would say probably 10 to 20 minutes you know the biggest mistake people make is they go out there and try and hit for an hour I mean no unless you've got you know unless you're Jason Zubak and you can hit 200 miles an hour for six hours people get slower doing that that makes sense well we're getting close to time here and We'll be respectful. We just have a few more questions left. When it comes to working with players on the road, when it comes to getting players ready on the road, there's a, one of the big challenges of travel, and I'm sure you see this working with MLB players. And I know I've heard of this issue with NBA players and NFL players. Is It's not just you're working out. It's also what you put in your body. How much work does TPI do on that with its players and what does that component look like as far as their team goes? Oh, I mean, I think nutrition, if that's what you're, is, 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 you know, you are what you eat, right? I was just with our, our head of our nutrition advisor board, Robert Yang yesterday doing some videos and I, and I feel like it's the easy button too, right? I mean, like there's nothing easier than just changing what you eat. If that helps, you know, you perform better on the back nine, why would you not do that? You're right. So, you know, to me, first of all, there is no, Here's the diet all golfers should do. Every person is different, right? So the first thing is, please don't be scared to experiment, right? Try different things because you might be like, oh my God, I don't know. I, I, they said don't do carbohydrates, do fats, but carbs are the thing that helps me the most. I, you don't know who you are. You just need to know. Number two is I think it's important hydration. Obviously, you know, if you get dehydrated, you've already screwed up, right? First signs of dehydration is you're making mental mistakes on the golf course, right? I, that's, I, I don't want to do that. So good rule of thumb, half your body weight in ounces a day, right? And majority of that should be on the golf course if you're doing that. We usually turn that into like swigs, like, hey, you need three swigs per hole, right? And if you do that, you, you kind of get a routine on your hydration. From a, a food standpoint, it depends on your tea time, right? Like, and we need to know like how soon do you need to eat, you know, sleep and timing and, and all of, for tournament preparation, so important just for, you know, all the travel and all that kind of stuff and getting on the digestive routine of where you're going, I think is very important as well for nutrition wise. So eating at the appropriate times and depending on where your tea time is, making sure that fuel is never a problem. It's like if we're going across country and there's no gas stations. If you don't bring enough fuel, you're not going across country, right? So you, you got you to gotta bring this stuff with you. I like things that, you know, that are easy in the bag and things that tend to give you more kilocalories. Like I, I'm a big proponent, if we can, using fat over carbohydrates and, and uh, proteins because they tend to give you double the kilocalories per gram and players tend to get a, a more steady blood sugar stream doing these things. But again, like I said, there's some people that, hey, that doesn't work. They like jerky and protein works better for them. But I think I said figuring out the foods that help keep you your your blood sugar stable we do hydration or we do uh, patches on sweat patches on some of the players just to see how many electrolytes they're losing during the round so we can supplement that properly. But don't under like if so the signs are I make bad mental decisions, back nines worse than the front nine. I start to lose power like my 16th tee shot is not the same as my first tee shot. These are all nutrition signs that literally could just you just change what you ate for breakfast or what you're eating during the course and that could go away without any training. I'm like, that's the easy button, right? 
do not underestimate that. And you should always have a nutrition workup if you're if you're an elite player, just to just just to be able to check. To kind of go along with that, something that people are really focused on these days is recovery. So, what do you recommend for recovery for your tour players? We're fanatics on this. I mean, if you go look at John Rahm's basement, it's like a recovery center, right? You know, I I feel like if we're playing five days in a row, right? I mean, just think about PGA Tour, right? So think about Tuesday's practice round, Wednesday's pro-am, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then start again. I mean, that's that's what's happening, right? So we're, 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 we're playing six days a week, and it goes for 11 months, right? If I'm playing on Friday, and I feel like it's the first time I played this week, I have an advantage over you. If you're like, oh, I've, I feel like I'm on my fourth day here. Because you are, but if I do recovery, when I wake up, it makes me feel like I didn't play the day before, right? So to say that that's important is an understatement, right? So our players, when they're done, we try and build a recovery center in their house or make it so they can travel with it. Things like hyperbaric oxygen chambers, things like infrared saunas, cold plunges, ready game, like blood circulation stuff, ozone treatments. I mean, uh, pulsed electromagnetic frequency pump machines. We've tried everything. And a lot of times players just go like, We'll say, like, what are you doing after the round? They're like, oh, I like to watch some TV or play some video games. or t-. And I'm like, cool. You're going to be wearing these things while you're doing that, right? Because you can, you can, it's it's not like you have to go do that and nothing else. You can get an infrared sauna and watch TV at the same time, right? So we just try and encourage, lead the horse to water. Like, so here's all the things you can do and you try it out. And normally what you'll find out is like, you'll find out like, hey, uh, when I do hyperbaric oxygen chamber, I feel like I didn't play the next day. Or when I do cryotherapy, I feel like I didn't play. You'll find the ones you really like and just stick with those and just do those. And like, you know, I had this conversation with Will Zalatoris when he got hurt at the end of last year. You know, he's 24, right? And I'm like, name another sport that you can play when you're 64 and still make millions of dollars, right? Like, we're not trying to prepare you to play the next five years. We're trying to prepare you to play for the next 40 years. Right. I mean, just if you really think the perspective there, like what other sport are we preparing for 40 years? There isn't one. Right. So when you think of longevity in a sport where you can make millions for over 40 years, recovery is probably the most important thing. And and just to finish on this, the most important part of recovery is sleep. Right. So get like an aura ring or a whoop band or something. Track your sleep. See how it's looking. I, I can't. I, I could spend 10 days uh, talking about the, the value of, of a good sleep, but it's really important to focus on that. Thank you. And we'll, we'll head to our last question after, after I asked this one, which was, you know, we, we talk about recovery and similar to other things in life. Some people look at some of the advanced recovery options, say, I don't know how effective those are when you guys are measuring recovery. Is it, how much of the measurement of whether recovery is working is subjective versus objective? Is it, oh, I- a little bit of both. Okay. Good question. A little bit of both. Like we can track to see like, hey, my heart rate variability, my resting heart rate, thing, things like this are improving. Or my, you know, you can use certain devices to see those looking at biometric data and stuff. I can look at power output, see if power is getting better. But, you know, I think most players- they're going to subjectively tell you like, man, I don't know. I just felt way fresher when I did this. And a lot of times they're right. You know what I mean? So I, I don't think you need to have crazy advanced technology to see if the recovery is working, but it does help if you have some of those. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Our last question we ask every guest is the same. And for you, it's going to be a, a two-parter and it's going to be a little different because the last question we ask every guest, if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that be for you? Start a little bit later. So we'll say right there. And then the second part we sometimes ask guests, which we'll ask you is if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that be? Hmm. Okay. So the first one, if I could go back in time when I first started playing, like I said, I was in college, I would tell myself to start earlier. Uh, the first thing I would, <laughs> I would say, you missed junior golf, idiot. Okay. So you said you didn't know how cool that game was. That That's an easy one. The second one, what would I tell a junior golfer? You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that as in, I'm going to, what would I tell a junior golfer who wanted to play this professionally? Can I, can I answer it that way? Absolutely. Okay. I would say that, do you know why they call it hard work? Cause it's hard, right? If anything you're doing and you're like, Hey, this isn't hard. This is easy. That's not hard work. Right. And the people who work the hardest are the players that I work with on a daily basis that are best in the world. 
There is no easy track to this. It's it's hard work. And how do you how do you put enough hard work in to be successful? Is it can't be work. You gotta love it, right? If this is not something you love, professional golf's not in your future, right? Because you have to work harder than anybody, any of your friends, anybody around you to become the best in the world. And to do that, it has to be a passion. It has to be something you love. And if you have that passion and you have that love, you could be great. But it all, it all comes down to hard work. Excellent. Well, we appreciate it. If people are trying to find you on social media, if they're trying to find TPI on social media, if they're trying to find TPI all in general. At my TPI. Easy. At my TPI. All those Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just go to at my TPI. All of our information there. You can go to our website, mytpi.com. And uh, for baseball, on baseu.com, for tennis, racketfit.com, all of our information is there. Be sure to check out TPI stuff. And like I said at the very beginning, we got the golfer's agreement going on. We need your help. So if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. If you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at The Tournament Code and on X slash Twitter, Tournament Code. As always, we appreciate you joining us. Look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play. Elite Tournament Golf.